Our sermon text this morning comes from Luke chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. People were bringing babies to Jesus so that he would bless them. When his disciples saw this, they scolded him. Then Jesus called them to him and said, Allow the children to come to me. Don't forbid them, because God's kingdom belongs to people like these children. I assure you, whoever doesn't welcome God's kingdom like a child will never enter it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, I don't know if you guys ever think about what kind of kid I was in church. I think about it because I was the kid in church. But I have to tell you, I wasn't perfect. Now, some of you are like, no kidding, we know you. Some of you might be surprised that I wasn't a perfect angel when I was in church. This does not represent how I acted when I was a child in church. I did not pray serenely through the service. I played, I made noise. I was, dare I say, disruptive. Quite frankly, you might say that church wasn't designed for children. The way we do church, believe it or not, was not designed for young people. Again, some of you might be like, wow, that's surprising. Some of you might be going, yeah, no kidding. It wasn't designed for kids. It wasn't designed certainly for kids like me growing up. Let me me give you just a couple of examples of me in church growing up. I liked church, don't get me wrong. But like kids, I got bored. I got the urge to explore and do things. So let me just give you sort of a couple cases in point. You might be familiar with what this is. This is a communion cup that is found ubiquitously in most churches around communion time. We at my church celebrated communion once a month. I liked communion, enjoyed it. Pastor sometimes was long-winded in talking about it. So one day when the pastor was talking about communion, I'd like to say that I was really young, but I was a teen when this happened. I was sitting there, listening, waiting to take the grape juice, and I thought, I wonder what grape juice smells like. I had never inhaled grape juice before. So I went like this, and I took a deep breath. Well, physics being what it is, when you inhale lots of air, all the particles come with it, and so I ended up snorting my grape juice (laughs) from communion. When you snort things up your nose and you don't intend to, especially liquid, it's not quiet. Okay, so there's that one. I often fell asleep in church. (laughs) So if you ever fall asleep in this church, I get it. I've been there. In fact, as as a teen, I developed strategies because, again, I liked church to keep myself awake. And it probably looked a lot like this because I wanted to be awake and yet I'd fall asleep. I had a job that kept me out late when I was a teen later. I played sports that we practiced at 10 p.m. at night. So weekends, I didn't get a lot. Weekdays, I didn't get a lot of sleep. Weekends, I didn't get a lot of sleep. I get it. It's okay. Sometimes we fall asleep. In church, But let me tell you kind of sort of the typical and very interesting story that my mom tells me about falling asleep in church or about, about kids in church, about me in church. Um, 
My mom might be watching this at some point in the future, so mom, if you're watching, please feel free to correct my story if I'm wrong. Um, Next time my parents are here, I'll have them tell the story, and maybe it'll be more factually based, but I think I've got the gist of it. So I don't know how old I was or how old my brother and I were. It was when we were both young enough to have to sit with our parents during church. Now, we were at church a lot, right? So we were there on Sunday morning. Sunday morning, we had children's church a lot of the time, so... This probably wasn't a Sunday morning, but we also came back every Sunday night as well. Yes, there was a time when church was on Sunday night as well. They didn't have kids' church on Sunday night, so we sat with my parents. We were there Wednesdays, like we were there a lot. So this probably happened on a Sunday night, I think. All I remember is that we were sitting close to the front of the church as a family, and that my brother and I were not being quiet. I don't know what that means. My brother and I fought a lot. My brother and I were kids and sometimes I would bring toys and I'd play with them and you know I don't know if this is the same for girls but boys and toys are often very loud when they play we shoot things or we crash things again I don't know if that's ubiquitous across I just know that's my experience so we weren't being quiet my brother and I were probably arguing fighting over a toy I don't know what but after several shushes the the person sitting in front of my parents turned around and looked at my mom And again, I don't know if he was joking. That's not part of the story. But he said to my mom, would you like me to spank them for you? (laughs) I don't recall sitting at that point anymore in church at that place. I was a kid in church. Church wasn't designed as we do it for kids. This particular model of doing church was designed in the 16th century, very scholastic, very learned, right? Very lecture hall-like, still is. Church wasn't designed for kids to sit in, right? And that particular person did not appreciate my brother and I making noise in the church. This is not an anti-noise in church sermon, nor is it a pro-noise or church sermon. It's just a sermon about being a kid in church and being antsy, as amazingly enough, you parents know, kids are sometimes antsy. Worship as we have it was designed largely for adults. And and this is not new. This has been the case, well, almost for all time. That religious services were often reserved for adults when you could be aware of such things, right? Whether it be, you know, at the bar mitzvah, at 13 in Jewish culture or other cultures, right? You didn't sort of kind of become actively involved in the worship until you were old enough and had come of age, responsible, whatever it might be, however we might call it. So that's kind of traditionally how things have gone in religion, which makes our story today from the Gospel of Luke interesting. Part of what makes it interesting is that it is not a wonderful, beautiful painting that we all know. It's not just, oh, isn't that cute? Jesus likes kids. There's something rather revolutionary going on here. So, so as the story goes, Jesus is sitting down teaching and preaching. Jesus did this a lot, by the way, in case you didn't know. Jesus taught. He preached a lot. And, and he, would, he would go to just about anywhere. Sometimes he did it in a temple. Sometimes he did it on the side of a mountain in Galilee, right? He would teach. And he would teach about the kingdom of God. And, and, and in our text today, Jesus has just finished teaching the story of the, the f- tax collector and the Pharisee, right? So let me just brief, this isn't, I'm not preaching about that, but I want to tell you about it. 
So the story goes like this. There's a Pharisee and there's a tax collector in church one day. And the Pharisee is looking up towards heaven and also looking over at that tax collector saying, God, I'm just glad I'm not a sinner like that guy. Right? And the tax collector goes, God, I'm a sinner. Help me. And Jesus says, which of those two went home justified, right? White with God. And and someone might say the Pharisee because they're holy and they're not sinners like the tax collector. But Jesus says the tax collector because he has nothing to give God and must receive the kingdom as a gift. So that's what just happened before this scene. So we want to keep that in mind because context is important when we're reading scripture. So that has just happened. And now Jesus, again, is continuing teaching. Perhaps there's no indication there's a shift in narrative. So he's just teaching. And, and for some reason, parents are bringing their children to be blessed by Jesus, that Jesus might lay his hands on them, right? Bless them. Now, why they were doing that, we don't particularly know. It doesn't say particularly here. Like, why, why did they feel that it was good to have Jesus bless their children, right? I mean, we do it in Jesus' name now, but that's because Jesus did it. Right? And that was a good thing. So, but I don't know why before that, why they blessed children. Children had different functions in the first century, right? No doubt they were loved and welcomed by their parents. So please don't hear me say anything different than that. But really, their cultural value was almost nothing, right? Because kids cost money, money that we parents love spending on them. So don't get me wrong. Again, I, I want to make sure we say this. But they cost money. And, and in the ancient world, like, your kids didn't become sort of profitable until they were old enough to work, right? And so until then, they were just stuff you, you had to feed this person. You had to, but you couldn't kill them for meat. Good thing, right? And they didn't produce eggs. And so they, they didn't really give anything back. And so they, they were just understood that that was the case, right? Parents loved them. Please don't get me wrong. They didn't hate kids in the first century. It was just different. It was a very utilitarian view. The other thing that we might think is actually working here is that the infant mortality in in the ancient world was very, 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 very high. Um, I'm going to say 50% because I can't remember the exact statistics, but I'm pretty sure it's higher than that. Like at, at least half of kids born in the ancient world in the first century did not make it to adulthood or 13, let's say, bar mitzvah in Jewish culture. I think it's upwards of 60, but 60%, but to be safe, we'll say half. So when you think about parents coming to to have Jesus lay his hands on their children, part of it might be just like this vain hope. This kid may not make it. There's a 50-50 chance that this child will not make it. And so if we have this healer in our midst, we have this holy man in our midst, surely we want him to bless them so that they might make it. Right? That, That parental urge that we all have, we want our kids to survive. Right? Okay, I won't, I won't ask you to raise hands, but I'm assuming all of us agree on that. Right, that parental urge to want our kids to survive and to do anything that we can to help them thrive, I think that's the urge that brought people to Jesus. But this was not normal in that day and age. Jesus was not only a teacher who was famous, he was a healer who was famous. And there were people everywhere he went longing to get to him, to have access to him. And so I think what's going on here is the disciples are the gatekeepers. They see it as their job to make sure that the right people have access to Jesus. Right? And so these parents are bringing their kids to Jesus. And and all the disciples see is these people have nothing to give back. Right? They're, they're They're not doing anything functionally to further Jesus ministry. They can't pay the bills. They can't do all this. They can't. The disciples were just sort of that mindset of, of, 
let's spend our time with the adults. And I won't say who matter, but, but the adults, because they're the ones here now, and they're the ones who can, who can help us. They're the ones who have influence. They're the ones who can, who can move things and, and create things and do things. And so the disciples, when the people were bringing their children to Jesus, said no. They forbid them from doing so. Forbid them. I want to be clear that I don't think the disciples are doing anything that would be like out of place in the culture. Right? Kids seen but not heard. Right? They're here but ministry for the adults. Not terribly unknown in the ancient world or our world for that matter. Don't see many kids in the halls of Congress making noise, running around, because they don't have lobbying power. They don't vote. Right? This is not unusual. In the disciples' time, and, and while we, like kids, probably like, have a generally more pro-kid approach than, than the ancient world, still, kids don't have power. They don't have influence. Parents are a wonderful voting block that people go after, but you don't hear people voting or courting the kid vote. Because kids can't vote. People of influence tend to spend time with the people who can promote their influence. Again, not any strange thing to say that in the first century, and not terribly strange thing to say that in the 21st century. But that's the context of what's going on, right? Likely the disciples are just thinking, we need to get Jesus to be with the people that will do most good, that can have the most influence, that can increase Jesus' honor more, and kids just weren't where it's at. And so the disciples say no. They forbid them. They hindered them. They scolded them. They rebuked them even, as it's said in some versions. And again, not terribly unusual, culturally speaking. What is unusual is Jesus' response. Jesus is not annoyed by this. Jesus is not put off by the parents who are bringing the kids to him. In fact, Jesus welcomes them. And when his disciples kind of just say, you know, let's put the brakes on this whole kid. We've had enough kid time. Um, kid service is over. Let's get to the adult stuff. Jesus isn't willing to do that. In this particular instance, Jesus says, wait a minute. And we who have grown up in the church know the this, this phrase well, let the kids come to me. Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, is what Jesus says. Now, there's other parts that tellings of this story or, or even parallel stories in the Gospels where Jesus says, if you do so, it's like, you know, you might as well have a millstone hung around your neck and thrown into the sea. So Luke is pretty benign in his telling of the story. Let the kids come to me and do not hinder them. But again, what's revolutionary here is Jesus doesn't stop with just do not hinder them, right? Jesus' purpose isn't, so he's not thinking in his mind, wow, 2,000 years from now, they're going to do these paintings that are going to be so sweet that people are going to look at them and go, oh, Jesus loves the little children. Jesus does love the little children. But this isn't a photo op for him. 
He's not just kissing babies as maybe we might think of kind of that parlance in these days. Jesus looks at these kids, looks at these young ones being brought, and does not just see people who can give him something, who can further his ministry, who are cute and who should be loved just because they're cute. Kids should be loved because they're cute. But that's not just what Jesus sees. Jesus sees them not only as good, but as instructive and, in fact, as exemplary when it comes to the kingdom of God. He says, do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, they don't have to be an adult to be important in God's kingdom. They don't have to to give something before they're important to God and God's kingdom. They don't have to be productive in order to further God's kingdom, to be important in God's kingdom. They are because they are. By their very being, they are important to God, as important, equally important to God as any adult is. The disciples, it seems to me, have sort of like means ends thinking, right? The end is to glorify Jesus, and how do we do that? Right? That's a good question to ask. How do we glorify Jesus? How do we raise Jesus' profile in our community? Right? So if, if the disciples were running a political campaign, they'd be like, how do we, how do, we do this? How do we raise Jesus' profile? We've got to get him with the city leaders. We've got to get him in front of TV cameras. We've got to get him on Fox News or CNN or whatever the case may be. Right? We've got to get him in front of people, in front of people who, who are important, who can, who can get the word out. We've got to make sure that you know, X person follows him on Twitter, whatever it might be, right? The end might be good. We want to raise Jesus' profile because Jesus is teaching awesome things and doing awesome things. And so if we just get him with the right people doing the right sort of stuff, then Jesus will be elevated and raised. And, but Jesus doesn't think like that. Jesus refuses to allow the kingdom to be like that. In fact, what, what Jesus says is the kingdom of God is not about that. God will be glorified no matter what. In fact, Jesus might say, God is glorified through these kids who are coming to me who have nothing to give. Remember the story. The Pharisee. Again, I don't want to to say Pharisee and us go, ooh, that's a gross person. Pharisee, holy person. Right? These people were followers of the law. They, They desired to be holy and righteous. And so the Pharisee praying says, God, I give you all these things. I do all these things. I'm righteous. I do all the right stuff. And I thank you that I'm not like that person who does all the wrong stuff. Right? And so we might say, yeah, it's the holy people who are going to heaven. It's the holy people to whom the kingdom of God belongs. Those who do, who earn. That ought to be alarm bells in our heads when we say earn. The stuff they do gets them the kingdom. But Jesus says in telling that story, it's the tax collector who comes to Jesus and says, I have nothing, God, to give you. I come empty-handed. Nothing to give. God, I throw myself completely on your mercy. And then Jesus, in the next story, is beginning to talk about the kingdom of God belongs to kids who have, on our 
calculation of what is important, money making, influence, power, they don't have that. But Jesus says the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Why? They have nothing to give. And that's exactly how we earn the kingdom, because we don't earn it. That's exactly how we receive the kingdom. Uh, You may have heard this analogy, but we cannot receive things when our hands are full. We can only receive things when our hands are empty. And, And so Jesus' point is, none of us are good enough or have anything value enough to earn God's kingdom. We can't pay our way in. Right? We're sinners. We we don't have the means, the capacity to have real relationship with God on our own. I can't force myself into it. Can't buy my way into it. If God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, then I certainly don't have enough to pay the right ticket, right? But rather what God says is, guess what? I'm throwing open the doors. And you don't earn it because I love you. Because you are. I want you to enter my kingdom because you are, because you are my creation, because I love you. And so that's what Jesus is saying about, about this. Is he, we place all sorts of value judgments on people, age just being one of them. Right? We tend to take people seriously when they reach a certain age. Right? But, but Jesus is saying, wait a minute, that's not how the kingdom of God works. They are valuable not because of age or mental capacity for that matter. They are valuable because they are. And so Jesus will say this to adults. You are valuable because you are. That tax collector, God would say you are valuable because you are, because you are coming empty-handed to the only source of life, and that is God. And so Jesus says the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. They have nothing to give. And that's exactly what Jesus loves. People who, who can just embrace. We're trying to wiggle their way into something. He loves them because they are. And he gives access to them because they are, which is probably the more important point here. We love kids because they are, but do they always have access? The young folks always have access to the things that we deem as adult. Jesus says the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. But, but Jesus doesn't end there. So that's, that's crazy enough for Jesus to say. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Not the, not the uber righteous, not the holy rollers, not the pastors, not the... Uh, pastors may not do that for you. But anyway, uh, not to the important people, not to the people who can buy their way in, not to the biggest tithers, whatever it might be, Right? That's, that's revolutionary enough given the, the culture of the day, the culture of our day. But Jesus, in fact, takes it further. What does Jesus say? In fact, I assure you, whoever doesn't welcome God's kingdom like a child will never enter it. Not just these have access to but rather these are the exemplars of what it means to receive God's kingdom. Some translations say babies here. Some say children. I personally like the baby's translation because 
you know, I, I have children. They're not helpless, right? Our children aren't helpless. Babies are fairly helpless, right? My, my children, I, I try not to tell them this, but they could survive without their parents. It would be hard. They'd have to scratch it out. Don't get me wrong. They'd survive. When they were babies, not so much. And so in using the word babies, and that is an appropriate translation of the Greek, we are getting this idea that it's not only just like kids who were undervalued in their time, but those who are helpless. In fact, unless you become like one of these, whoever does not welcome God's kingdom as one of these... So so here's what I'm not saying. Do all the things that make you more childlike. Okay? I'm not saying be childish. Right? If you have grape juice and you want to smell it, do it, do it, just waft it, don't, right? That was a childish act on my part. I'm not saying that's the way to the kingdom of God. I got an amen from Everett there. Because that's just to put more ways of earning God's kingdom, right? Child have a simple faith or whatever. I really think what Jesus is going for is babies have nothing. And that's how we have to receive God's kingdom. Knowing we have nothing. Now, babies may not know it yet. That's where he calls us to embody that for us. But we know we have nothing to give that will earn our way into God's kingdom. And to receive it as such. Not that I'm such a worm that I have nothing to give. That, that may be your stance. But, but it's also that there is nothing I need do. Because I can't be good enough. I can't be smart enough. God's good. God is smart. <laughs> I can never match that. What I can do is accept the gift that God has given, the kingdom. Knowing I have nothing that earns it. There is nothing more insulting than trying to pay for a gift someone gave you. We accept it like babies. Now, why am I saying all this? I mean, this is a good sermon on its own. Well, if the sermon's not good, it's a good point on its own. It may not be a good sermon. But as you know, if you've been around the last few weeks, and, and those who aren't, we're going through this idea of growing together. How do we, how do we foster a, a church that is inclusive of, also, of young people, that welcomes them in these ways? Church was designed for adults. Most of the money goes for adult programming in most churches. We spend a lot of time and effort on adult stuff. And I'm not saying spending time and effort on adult stuff is bad. It's not. However, as we think about do we value young people as Jesus did? Again, not for their tithing ability, In fact, if I regard anybody as more or less important because of their tithing ability, I'm wrong. (laughs) So that's not a good metric to use on how we spend our money and effort as a church. 
And so part of what we're going through is this idea of how can we intentionally focus on ways in which we see that we are programming largely or our, our church largely or the church just historically has just focused mostly on adults and said, children are great. We like to see them occasionally, but they have their own things all the time. And, and, and what we do here is, is mostly adult stuff. It's to start to ask ourselves, how might we foster environments that welcome children, welcome young people the way Jesus would welcome them? Good not for their monetary value or their influence value, but because they are. And so I just want to posit a couple of things, a couple of ways we might do this. A couple of ways in which we might be thinking about it and and considering what does it mean to, as, as the literature that we're working through, this book that we're working through, Growing Young, says prioritizing young people everywhere. That means not just giving space and time at, at occasionally or thinking about it occasionally, but thinking about the church holistically, right? That, that we don't say, well, we have to youth and adults and all this, but how do we get all of this together and prioritize young people in everything we do? Right? I, I get it. doesn't mean you have to involve every single thing has to have a young person in it. But it's starting to ask that kind of question of how might this thing involve young folks? How might our worship better involve young folks? And again, young in, in the context of our discussion is 29 and under. He said 40 and under, which I thank him for, but I'm still not a young folk. Right? How, how, do, we, how do we do that? How do we, do we reserve kind of positions of leadership? for just people who, are, who have reached sort of the golden age of 40 or 45 or whatever it might be. And then we say, okay, well, you're 40, and some sort of that arbitrary number has given you dignity and grace to be able to lead this ministry, for instance. Or do we say, if you are called and equipped, if you have leanings or giftings in this area, how can we involve you? You might notice that our worship team has young folks on it and has some not-so-young folks on it. Right? That is partially by design. We have young folks helping in a lot of different areas this morning. That's partially by design, but we're not just saying, oh, we got to put a young folk here. That was really bad grammar. I'm doing it again. But it's saying, wait a minute, this person can and do and, and has something to give. And, and, and that young people are not valuable simply as the future of the church, but they are valuable because they are, and they are the church of today as much as we are. And so how do we involve them? How do we help them hear what goes on? I, I'm admitted, I'm not the most interesting person if you're under, I'm going to say under 17. It's, I'm probably being generous with myself on that. Right? This way of communicating is not always the most effective with young folks. How do we change so that the gospel might be heard by more because children are not just our future, they are today. And they are valuable and integral. So how can we simply acknowledge their presence, make them know that they are important? Thank you for being here, right? So we can acknowledge their presence. That's good. It's a good start. Uh, We can make room for them. Right? Are we willing to shift the way we do things or the way we arrange things for the sake of younger folks to be here? This is a conscious decision that we do. Not because we want to, again, throw anyone just sort of a here you go. 
It's we want people to be involved in the ways that they can and in the ways that, that help them connect. They can be involved in all aspects of church life, not just worship, but in everything we do. Again, because they have value in and of themselves. We can allow them to lead. Which is sometimes scary. I didn't think it was scary when I was a young folk. Now that I'm not a young folk, it's scarier to trust and entrust important things, teaching, leading music to people who are younger than me. But guess what? Young folk are gifted and talented in lots of different ways. And our, our church is better for them being involved in as many places as possible. Uh, I'm going to say this carefully because I was thinking it earlier and I said it wrong in my head and I don't want to say it, say it wrong. A rising tide floats all boats, Right? So, so, so part of the idea that we come behind this is, is getting young people more involved and, and just at least focusing, trying to help ourselves see them more. It's going to make us all better because we are better for them in our midst. What I'm not saying is we ignore everything else. What I am saying is being intentional to think about these things and how we might do better because they teach us as much as the opposite is true in lots of different ways. So that's the question. How might we incorporate? How might we allow them to lead in ways that are appropriate? Not just saying, oh, you're a young folk. Here, you can lead worship this Sunday. I'll see you later. I'll be sitting out there. That's not what we're talking about. But how do we give them opportunity to learn alongside and then to lead as it becomes appropriate? It's sometimes scary to think in those ways, or you may be thinking, yeah, that's exactly what we should be doing. I don't know. But it's something to be thinking about. How might we be better at involving young people? Again, young people, 29 and under, as it's defined by the studies that we're looking at. How might we be willing to give up something sometimes in order that they might feel more accepted, more involved, be able to have and contribute and do because they are valuable. In fact, they are exemplars of God's kingdom. I just thought this was a funny picture. (laughs) It warms, I mean, I'm a pastor, so it warms my heart to see a little kid doing, I didn't do this when I was young, but it just warms my heart. But kids can lead us. Young people can lead us. So how might we better let them. If for no other reason, young people should be valuable to us because they're valuable to Jesus. If for no other reason, and there's lots of other reasons, do not hinder them. So we might look at it this way. Are we doing anything that might be hindering young people from coming to Jesus, sitting with Jesus? How might we work to break down those walls so that all might have access to the Savior who has done so much for us, for me, that they too might hear and know the love of God and be recipients 
of God's own kingdom. Two final thoughts as the worship team is coming up. This is not something that we do haphazardly. It should be intentional. Intentional, which means we have to think about how we might and then act on that. It has to be thoughtful, which means we have to give it thought. Right? Again, it's not just sort of, we talked about this keychain leadership, but it's not just sort of throwing responsibility at people who are younger than us. It's like, take it, have fun. I didn't like it, you might. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about, uh, I don't like to do this, so maybe we should have a young person do it. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not thoughtful. It's saying, there are young people in our midst, and as they want to, to be involved, to contribute, how might we allow them? Are we doing anything to hinder that? And then, as Jesus did, throw open the gates and say, let them come to Jesus. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these.